So I hope things are going well. I thought tonight to say a few things about sati, mindfulness, timeless topic. As you know, well-researched. Um, it's a staggering amount of uh, research papers have all this has rocketed since 2000 and um, so there's much expertise about mindfulness out there in the world and I thought to add to this literature something that is actually already a long part of this literature, namely some of the images of sati the text of the Buddha are using. As you know sati is uh, about as famous as you can be if you happen to be an important mind quality in the chart lists of early Buddhism. Um, those chart lists are far from unbiased, some of the things one would like to see in there and is not for a variety of reasons and some things are rightfully prominent, so sati is one of those rightfully prominent topics. Um, so it is an Indriya, it is a, a Bhujanga, it is um, a Bala, it is, um, you know, about as famous as you can be uh, in terms of a single quality. It is probably not as heroic, lonely quality as sometimes is made out by contemporary folks who uh, extol its virtues. Sati in the texts is generally mentioned together with many friends. So Sati uh, can not really be isolated from other mind qualities easily without running the risk of gravely diminishing its power, its transformative power. So sometimes uh, contemporary um, ways of understanding mindfulness seem to try to elevate it at the expense of other mind qualities. Um, and that is slightly at loggerheads with the original context if we look at the the suttas, what the suttas have to say. First of all, let's begin with the term. The term, I think, is in English is very felicitous. I envy your language for that term. Um, if you look, um, the word mindfulness practically didn't exist before it was used as a translation for sati in uh, the 1880s by uh, a Welsh scholar who learned about Pali when he was aboard civil servant in India, uh, in Sri Lanka and came home and single-handedly convinced the Sanskrit faculties to adopt Pali as a language in, in, in the English universities, which is a, a real blessing. Uh, founder of the Pali Text Society and uh, famous translator. So he coined that term mindfulness for uh, the Buddhist notion of sati. Um, I think inspired, uh, we must have been inspired by a Christian usage of the term, something like um, the adjective mindful seems to be in the James Bible, King James Bible, to be mindful of the needs of others, for example. Um, but the noun actually isn't really used very much. 
I've traced it somewhere in an old English-French dictionary where it was the translation for thinking, for pensée, mindfulness. But if you look at its usage, and uh, it's fun to do that, you, you know, our friends from Google have basically OCR'd 15 million plus books, and that text corpus is available, so you can actually do word searches across it and uh, kind of narrow down the time frame where things are used. And it does occur, but it does occur not very often. And uh, it has the advantage of not meaning anything else in English, as far as I'm concerned. Before it was widely used in the last 30 or 40 years, largely through Buddhist influence, it had actually no specific connotation. And that's beautiful because that means people who use the term in a particular context can give it its meaning. Yeah? This is a great blessing. So you can actually charge it with meaning. As a teacher, one of the problems is uh, that you keep having is when people know the words you're using, they believe already they know the thing you want to say. So it's very difficult to use old words and try to say something new. Because people hear the words and say, ah, or I know, I know, I know. But in fact, uh, they don't. Because what you have to say is actually quite new, or the context is new, or the dynamic is new, but you have to say it in old words. Yeah? So teachers generally cheat. Yeah. So either they kind of, they give you old words, which makes you, aha, yes, I know already. Yeah, we're all flattered when we feel validated in our understanding. And then they kind of like shift the goalposts, you know, while they talk. They kind of, basically then you find out that what you actually thought it means is no longer what it means. Yeah? But they kept, you t they kept you at it all the time because they kind of gave you the feeling you know. It's not very far. You're very close and then kind of shuffled the meaning slightly aside. So, so that's one game teachers do. The other game is they kind of torture you with empty word sort of shells. You know, you could just get an empty husk of a word, of a concept, and then they ask you to bear patiently while they try gradually to fill the rucksack of that word, yeah, so that it starts to have a meaning. Generally, teach you do a number of things, but those two things they do repeatedly, if you look. So. Because obviously, one of the things we really don't like is being faced with something we don't understand. Yeah? The older you get, the more insulting this experience gets. Yeah? This is a, if you're young, then you know, the world is your discovery and so forth. But you know, the older you get, the more you feel basically insulted in your competence and in your expertise at being a living being when people confront you with things you really don't know. So <clears throat> teachers have to take into account this dynamic, the difficulty of this. So I envy the English language for having uh, produced a very precise, very fine term that is at once not offensive and at the same time, it's not actually used, so it can be charged with Buddhist meaning of sati. Other languages are not quite as fortunate. I could drag you now at length uh, through definitionary uh, proceedings, but that's not what I wish to do tonight. Uh, it's difficult to speak about definition. It's a r wordy business. And actually, 
the older I get, the more I have a feeling we don't really understand things in terms of definitions very clear. What we understand is context. We understand application. We understand very little is actually done with definitions, and particularly etymological definitions are treacherous. And so I thought of looking at some of the imagery in which sati is used in the suttas, because that imagery often carries easier across the centuries and across the cultures, because an image we can relate to without much words. We, an image we can often relate to um, with the other side of our brain hemisphere. And it speaks to us in different ways than a painstakingly um, teased out definitory meaning. So how does the Buddha use sati? The term is occurring a lot in the texts. It occurs not simply as a, uh, as a standalone word, in this sort of in the sense, do sati, guys, uh, lest you regret it or so. It occurs in a lot of compounds. So you have uh, the famous satipatthana, of which I spoke last night. You have the, the equally famous anapana sati, the mindfulness of breathing in and out, which they have a funny relationship with each other. If you bother looking at the text, it's quite interesting. If you read the Anapanasati Sutta, it sounds like Satipatthana practice is sort of a subset of Anapanasati. You know, it's kind of, it's mentioned in between, just in passing, the paragraph is kind of stated, Satipatthana paragraph. So there are some exponents, famous Thai teacher who was famous for his uh, Anapanasati teaching, who always thought that the real genuine stuff is Anapanasati. And Satipatthana is basically, yeah, they smuggled that in somehow. Yeah. If you read the Satipatthana Sutta, it's the other way around. You have a feeling Satipatthana is the big framework and Anapanasati is just part of body. You know, it's part of body awareness. So as I said last night, it's one of the six uh, practices of Kaya Nupassana. Anapanasati is just a subset of the big Satipatthana teaching. So there seems to be a little tension there in the text. And it's um, funny sometimes to see these things. Obviously, they're connected, not just in the word, but the word, as you hear clearly, is in the title of both. Then we have Sati as Anusati, as recollection, which is a very powerful exercise. Um, Anu is a prefix meaning going up or going along with. Um, if, you, if you do something anuloma, then you do it with the grain. And if you do something patiloma, you do it against the grain. Yeah? So the Buddha thought of his teaching as being a teaching that goes against the grain, against the stream, against habit. So it's one of the reasons he felt it would probably be difficult to teach. It would be hard work and it might not find many followers. Um, so he thought of the teaching as going pati loma or pati sotagamin. So going against the stream. So we have anusati and then we have pati sati, which is also a form of uh, contemplating um, when... Anusati is bringing something up into the mind. Patisati is looking back. Um, and so forth. There are many other applications of this term sati. So we don't just find it in a specific 
recurrent context, but we find it in a number of contexts. Many of those contexts, within a few words, there are other words used. Particularly in the context of the Satipatthana teachings, the term Sampajano, the adjective for clear comprehensiveness or clearly comprehending, to be uh, more precise, is used. So often these go together. So you have sati, sampajanya, mindfulness and clear comprehension, which is important, very important, because while mindfulness creates the relationship, clear comprehension creates the context, yeah? connects to value structures, for example, connects to lateral awareness, for example, connects to the rest of the world. The Technically, sati is a sankara. It's part of the sankara kanda. It's listed in the Theravada Abhidhamma as a sovana cetasika, so as a uh, a bright uh, mental quality, and um, that is at slight loggerheads with the sutta teachings because in the sutta teachings um, you find sammasati and you find michasati, yeah? wrong mindfulness. If we look at the examples of wrong mindfulness, generally such mindfulness is um, defined as wrong when it is dealing with objects that are leading to unwholesome states of mind. So when I speak of sati tonight, I basically mean samasati. I mean a mindfulness that is appropriate and a mindfulness that has wholesome consequences. Um, Other Buddhist traditions, the other Abhidhamma traditions seem to be uh, not siding with the Theravada Abhidhamma. Some of the Sarvastavadan schools have decided that sati is an avyakata dharma, so it's neither wholesome nor unwholesome. But the Theravada Abhidharma is quite adamant that sati is always a wholesome factor of mind. And in many ways, although the term... um, wrong mindfulness does occur in the suttas, the Buddha speaks quite clearly that one could have never enough of sati, that of sati, sati can be maximized basically without risking imbalance. This is an interesting statement. So what are these images? Let us begin with body awareness, since we're in the Kayanupasana part of our retreat. There is a very stark image of a man with a bowl of oil brimful on his head, walking through a crowd, uh, a crowd that has assembled to see the beauty of the country, the, the country's bell, singing and dancing. In other words, a heedless crowd gathered. Uh, in the throng, in the throes of, of, you know, of the local, the local bell, and not very attentive to people walking through the crowd with a bowl of oil on their head. So our man with his brimful bowl of oil on his head is uh, followed by another man with a drawn sword, threatening to lop off his head at the first drop shed or spilled. Huh? And this is an example for uh, the Buddha asked his monks, would monks, such a monk, be lacking in bodily awareness? <laughs> hint, hint, hint. Yeah? And the monks dutifully say, no, no, Lord, no, he would, he would be most meticulous in his bodily deportment. He would be most 
you know, most composed in how he moves. He would feel every part of his body most meticulously because otherwise, you know, he's dead. Um, it's an interesting image, isn't it? It has a slightly almost punitive character. So we're not following through on that image. So there's nobody walking with a sword behind you when you maybe feeling a bit dozy after the meal or so. So you're not actually having to fear losing your head in this practice. But it is a stark image that tells us how, uh, I think psychologists would probably call this uh, vigilance or even hypervigilance, uh, can be established and has something to do with attentional focus. An attentional focus that is completely with the body. You, know? you may know this, you may have situations in your life, uh, experienced uh, scenarios in which you had to be absolutely, completely focused on what your body does because uh, your life depended on it. If you've been part of uh, some dangerous setup or if you like to put your life in danger by doing uh, thrill sports or if you happen to have a habit of climbing, of doing free climbing or things like that, you may be highly aware that one wrong move and you're basically out. You know? So this gives us an immediate, an immediate um, heightened awareness of our, of our bodily uh, situation. Obviously, this is one aspect of it. And we have other images that speak of a lot more placid scenarios. One such scenario is a man climbing his chariot, climbing the bench on his chariot and overlooking road and animals and maybe the cartload he has. And just has a slight overview because he's a little bit, of, a little bit elevated and overlooks a scene. And that is likened to sati. There are other such images. There's word of a man climbing the uh, upper story of his house or the roof of his house and thus uh, overseeing the landscape. Again, uh, the analogy would be something sati is likened to a panoramic open uh, quality. Then we have some interesting images. In one of the commentaries, sati is likened to salt in the food. So it is said as much as salt brings out the flavor of other foods in the same way sati brings out the characteristics of qualities in our experience. That's a, that's a very interesting image. So it's an enhancer. You know. Salt, not monosodium glutamate. Yeah. So it, it heightens what else, whatever else we experience. Yeah. That's, I think, a very apt image because, obviously, as Bhikkhun Alayo has worked out very nicely, sati, although strictly not memory, that's what it was in the Vedic tradition, when sati is present, your capacity to memorize something is greater and your capacity to recall is greater. And the sharpness of your recall is great. So, although sati is not actually directly memory, it aids the mnemonic process. You know. And 
Sati, obviously the most effective way if, is Sati is there when you're trying to let something in and when you're trying to recall that something later. In both occasions when Sati is present, that process is greatly facilitated. So what else do we have? We have Sati <coughs> very in a very different facet. We have Sati is likened to a post post that is rammed into the ground and uh, on that post six wild animals are chained and they're all trying to tear away going into their respective domains so there's a crocodile there's a shackle there's a dog there's a bird and these wild animals are like likened to um, to our senses and each of these senses wants to be stimulated and pummeled and seeks gratification in its respective domain but the post to which these senses are chained does not budge. And so the wild animals gradually tire and become tame. And instead of pulling and trying to run and jump, they become quite docile, sedate, stand, sit, lie down, and become peaceful. Yeah. And sati is likened to that post that does not budge. Sati clearly in the role of stability, clearly in the facets that is necessary to build stillness and calm of mind. Yeah? This is the facet that is most powerful, uh, powerfully formative for stillness, calm, unification of mind. Sati clearly in the service of Samadhi. Then we have Sati in a very painful image that's um, a surgeon receives a patient, patient has, a wo uh, has an arrow wound and the, the arrowhead is buried in the flesh and the shaft is broken off. So what is visible is just, uh, you know, the hole of the wound, but the actual foreignest part in the body is not seen. And our surgeon uses an instrument, a probe, to insert that probe into the wound so that he has a tactile experience of what he does not have a visual experience of. Namely, he has something that tells him where that arrowhead is, how big it is, what shape it has. And that probe, something with a soft tip that it doesn't injure and yet hard enough that it gives a tactile um, echo to the fingers of our surgeon, that probe is likened to sati. So what the eye does not see, sati makes visible or makes understandable. Yeah. Sati clearly in the sense of investigation, uh, examination, uh, probing into. Yeah. A very powerful image and I believe a very powerful facet of Sati. Then uh, we have Sati in two images for um, a, um, a gatekeeper. Sati as a gatekeeper. Two, twice it is used as a gatekeeper, very different role. First, Sati is a gatekeeper who scrutinizes people who want to go into the city. And if, if the gatekeeper knows the people who want to go in, he just lets them in. If they, he doesn't know them, he, he questions them. He um, wants to know where they're from and what business they have. And some he lets in and some he doesn't. Quite interesting, yeah. And um, we're helped by the commentary that tells us that uh, Sati guards the heart from 
unwholesome influences in the same way the gatekeeper protects the citizens of the city from people who have no business in that city yeah, and whom he doesn't trust. It is quite some distance at, you know, famous Sati definition that is so uh, current, uh, non-judgmentally, deliberate, present-centered, so forth. Yeah? Sati sounds quite different here. It's quite stern in a way, quite protective. In fact, one of the functions of Sati is quite clearly protective. Yeah? In the second image, Sati, again, as a gatekeeper, but this time the gatekeeper has a different job. He, he expects... Um, he expects emissaries, messengers who come from a long distance. Messengers, are, by the way, are called, one is called Samatha and one is called Vipassana. So the messengers have a very important, um, truthful message. And the gatekeeper eagerly expects them at the city's gate so that they, when they arrive in the city, don't get lost in the maze of, of, of small alleys and don't get lost in the market in the market stalls that are happening to take place on that day. So Sati has the job as a gatekeeper to receive those messengers and take them on the straightest and most direct and fastest way to the governor of the city so that they don't get lost. Sati, quite interestingly, in with the job of efficiency and economy. Yeah, so. Then we have um, an interesting image of Sati's um, or let me start at the other end. The image begins with a um, a cow herding boy, and the cow herding boy first is in this in the time when the the corn, uh, not the corn, the uh, the grain is growing high. So he has to make sure that the cows don't run away from the meadow and run into the field and destroy the fruit of the field. Yeah. That's what that would really get him in trouble. Remember, kind of settlers and nomads, cow herders, and this is a long story here in human history, isn't it? It's not always been easy. You know, it seems that the settlers have won on the whole, but you know there there have been some issues there. So the the cow herding boy has at all cost make to make sure that his cows do not run into the ripe fields. So he jumps up and down, he screams, he has a stick, he hits them, he waves his arms. And, and this activity is called protection, rakati. And then cut, two months later, field is harvested, mm, cows are quite placid, grazing on the meadow. Our, our cow herding boy is just um, lying in the shadow of a shrub, uh, occasionally lifting his head, looks over there and says, oh, the cows are still there, they're not going to go anywhere. I don't really need to do much. And this is called establishing sati, yeah. which is a quite uh, lovely image, isn't it? It's what we like to hear, isn't it? Sati is just, I look over at the cows and the cows don't really need any intervention and I just go back into the shadow of my little bush. Um, so establishing sati is what our boy does when the cows are peaceful because they don't feel tempted to run into the ripe field. Then we have an image that occurs on the Melinda Panha where um, Sati is juxtaposed with um, when you throw a gourd into a river. Yeah? 
the gourd drifts away with the current in the river. And sati is unlike that gourd. It does not drift away. Sati enters into the object it deals with, it is associated with. In other words, it is um, not superficial, it is penetrating, and it does not float away. Yeah. It's a very, very interesting image, this non-floating away, anapilapana. Um, We have an image of a sati being likened to both the plough and the goad of a ploughman. Imagine a very simple sort of plough, if you've ever been to India, particularly Bihar, you, chances are high that you still see such ploughs. Sometimes it feels like since the Buddha walked the dust of this particular area, not much good has happened there. Um, there's a few blessings short on that particular, in that particular province. It's one of the most poor and in many ways corrupt and um, people can be quite downtrodden, particularly the women there. Um, and you, you know, there's a kind of poverty there that is really brutal. Uh, I walked there with a fellow monk in those days and we were beggars and depended quite clearly on what people offered us. We had no money as monks and we wanted to walk the holy places. So we did a long, long walk and it has really etched itself into my mind how, how poor people were there and yet how generous at the same time. So there is great poverty <coughs> um, and 90 or so million people, 90 million Biharis so it's not short of people and has been very populous already in the days of the Buddha. And uh, agriculture was crucial, and yet it's not very intensive agriculture compared to what you guys are familiar with here. So such a plow looks very simple. It's a, stra it's a contraption that basically is a piece of wood that goes into the ground with a sort of a protective metal man uh, uh, sheath at the front part of that wooden prong that goes into the ground. And there's something that you can put your foot on to weight that plow and then usually it goes over and has a sort of a gabled handle so that you could use one or two hands to hold to stir the thing if you put on too much weight it goes too deep into the ground and gets torn to bits or gets stuck if you don't weight it enough it just scrapes the surface and doesn't do the plowing properly so the task is double. You need to make sure that your oxen go straight. You want a decent furrow. So that's what you need your goat for. And in a way you could say sati here clearly in um, the job of um, clear direction. Yeah. And then the weight you need to put on that plow has to be also appropriate. So sati clearly in something like um, the meaning of uh, attuned effort maybe. or yeah. So sati does the, has a double task, namely getting the right amount of effort, getting the right amount of weight onto your plow and making sure that your oxen are going straight. If you just do the plow, uh, your oxen may go off. Yeah. If you just do the oxen, your plow may not do the job. Uh, the commentary tells us that as the plow turns the earth and reveals 
what is not immediately obvious to the eye in the same way sati turns what is not obvious to our understanding namely it turns up the three lakanas the three characteristics of uh, conditioned experience yeah anicata impermanence dukkata uh, contingency and dependency and uh, anatata impersonality so i think that's an interesting image interesting so that it doesn't sati is not just one thing As you see, it would be difficult to find a word or even a technical term, irrespective of which field of mind, um, whether you want to use cognitive sciences or whether you want to use uh, the neurosciences or whether you want to use um, old-fashioned psychology. It's very hard to find one single term that seems to do justice to all these different images. Yeah? That's one of the reasons why sati is so hard to nail down while why we we keep encountering many people who simply equate sati with plain attention you know, which it is not you know although sati is attention is an indispensable part of mindfulness reducing mindfulness to plain attention does it a great disservice you see attention is something you can willfully direct you can bundle you can we speak of attentional focus i do a lot of speaking around attentional focus so attention is something you can direct and do and deliberately um, instigate and focus it on things but there's many things attention cannot do yeah attention is not very good spatially attention doesn't do the recollection bit Attention doesn't have an ethical component as sati have. There are many bits missing in attention which are there in sati. And if we allow psychologists to reduce what they believe to be plain attention when the Buddha speaks of mindfulness, then we're basically selling the thing short. So there is attention in sati, but sati is a lot more. Mindfulness is a lot more than just plain attention. So, what do these images tell us? They tell us a quality that is capable of space. Yeah. The image of the chariot, the guy who climbs the roof. Sati is investigative, examining the probe that goes into the wound to find out the shape and size and contour of, of our arrowhead. Sati is there in the role of stability, as in the post, holding the wild animals. Sati is capable of protection, as in the image of the gatekeeper who keeps the bad guys out. Sati is there in the role of efficiency, economy, the other gatekeeper who makes sure that our messengers don't get lost. Um, Sati doesn't float away on the current, on the associative drift that moves through our mind. Um, sati is highly vigilant in the exa first example of our body awareness of the man with the bowl of uh, oil on his head. Um, yeah, I think I have most of them. Ah, the, the shepherd, uh, the cowherd, cowherding boy. Yeah. Again, 
uh, an image of placidity, open, relaxed spaciousness, isn't it? So it's really hard to bring that all together under one term. And yet, if we reduce sati, if we limit it to one of its mean, one of these meanings, uh, then we risk that we lose the complexity and the, the many facetedness of it. Yeah. Now, in some way, you could say that all the great dimensions of mind development I spoke of last night, all the four forms of bhavana, in many ways go back to facets of sati, at the hub of this cultivation of mind, you know, the ethical part, the body part, the stillness part, the wisdom part, all these dimensions go back in some way to one facet of sati. They're in seed form. All these big areas of development are already in seed form, dormant, so to say, in sati. So sati, if you develop stillness, obviously the stability aspect, the capacity to firm, to connect with an object is very needed. Yeah? If for the wisdom aspect, sati uh, needs to do in a lot of investigation. It's the examining aspect. It starts with curiosity and ends with profound understanding things from the root. Yeah? That lovely term, yoniso manasikara, understanding things from where they begin, from, from the womb, so to say. Really not being superficial. So that wisdom aspect uh, in sati is very clearly borne out by the probe that goes in. Then we have the sila aspect, you know, to the development of sila entails that you have some lateral awareness, that you are connected to your own empathy. So that's why Brahma Viharas are not just something for people who can't meditate. So they, they just, you know, that's what that's what I thought. You know, Brahma Viharas are basically people for guys who don't have samadhi. That's 30 years ago when I heard of Brahma Viharas, that's what I thought. This is the soft option for for people who can't meditate. I've um, I've changed my tune a little bit along those lines in the years. I've developed a great appreciation for um, forms of universal empathy. I've also understood that um, we are who we are basically because of empathy. It is the human brain development goes straight back to capacity to empathize with each other. And that's what uh, made it possible that our frontal lobes have grown. Uh, because things were safe enough around us that we could be very long depending on our um, caregivers. And those caregivers could be safe enough to be looking after us while we were completely dependent on them because there was something around them that was empathetically present enough and protective enough that uh, some of the tribe or some of the clan or some of the gang could basically look after the young. And such very simple empathetic connection made it possible that our brains could grow. So empathy is not just kind of nice, being nice. Yeah. It's very much at the heart of 
our species, it's at the heart of our, uh, our self-construct, it's at the heart of our survival. Not so long ago, being cast out of your group meant basically you were, you were food out there. You know? If your tribe kicked you out or ostracized you, if you kind of, if you somehow lost it with your, with your clan, then that meant you were on your own and that meant you were probably very soon no longer dare. Yeah. So our social fears and shame still have, you know, echo some of these conditions. Now, while we pride ourselves today to have glorified the autonomous subject as the product of Western society, and the obs pet obsession of Occidental thinking, um, basically we still have a lot of fears around social appearances and what others think of us and you know, we're still suffering from shame and um, such things. And um, that has something to do probably with the fact that we needed each other for survival, not so long ago. That we are so important in each other's mind. Um, that many of the things we learn, amongst them sati, mindfulness, entails other people who help us with that. There are things we can learn on our own and there are things we don't learn on our own. Language we don't learn on our own. You need people to speak to you before you learn that. You need people to help you speak it. And that goes on for quite a while before you can actually do this. It's quite dramatic how children learn, but uh, if, you, if you have nobody there to speak to you, you won't learn it. Empathy is the same and mindfulness is the same. You don't just turn out mindful if nobody is mindful to you, if nobody helps you in your first steps of being mindful, and if nobody um, mentors you. You, know, you need examples, you need concrete help, and you need keep doing it. Otherwise, it's, it's going away again. You know, we all know that. Just because we were mindful 10 years ago doesn't mean we are mindful tonight. Yeah. It's the bad side of neuroplasticity. You, you can't just develop it, you can also lose it. Yeah. It's not just the case with neuroplasticity, it's the case with everything that is learned in our life. Yeah. You, you lose it if you don't practice it. So mindfulness is learned with others, from others, through others, very, very clearly. So. Empathy is necessary both for training in mindfulness and mindfulness in turn helps us train empathy. So we have a connection between mindfulness and ethics, we have a connection between mindfulness and wisdom, we have a connection between mindfulness and stillness. Um, and obviously we have a connection between mindfulness and self-awareness, yeah? what's happening in the body. And that can powerfully be trained. So if you do mindfulness of breathing, you will learn a lot more about your body. You will feel more from your body. You will uh, learn to lower your threshold of intensity before you begin to be aware of something. And you start to tap into some of that body's intelligence. You know? There's a lot of intelligence in a body. It's not just 150,000 years of frontal lobe development, but actually, you know, 4 billion years cellular intelligence 
There's a lot in there, which we, with a sort of prefrontal pride, sometimes tend not to acknowledge. So mindfulness is a way in there. And um, it's at the hub of all the major lines of development, as I outlined for the term bhavana last night, kaya bhavana, physical relation, relationship to the physical world, sila bhavana, relationship to the ethic, to the social world, citta bhavana, to stillness and to the brahma viharas and panya bhavana, development of wisdom. So sati is right there in the hub of it. Good. Recall, please, some of those images. I would like to stop for now and um, stretch your legs for a moment. Let us uh, sit for. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.